910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. So Rose, I have a question for you. Did you ever go anywhere as a family and when you got home, you realized that you left one of your kids behind? <laughs> I think I re- kind of remember this in the back of my mind about you somewhere. Well, this is uh, one of those terrible mother stories. We have four children and our older three are really close together. They're like one year and then two years apart. And then our fourth one is five years later. So one time when our youngest was four years old, we were at church on a Sunday. My husband wasn't with me because he had to work. So I had the four kids. You know, we had church and Sunday school and we're rushing to get ready. So we all get in the car and I'm like, come on, let's go, let's go. And we get halfway home. And one of my other three said, the older three said, we forgot Bo, my youngest, who was four at the time. <laughs> now, thankfully, church was only like five minutes from our house. So to turn around, it was only you know, three, four minutes back. And when I got there, I walked in the lobby, you know, I ran in and I see his Sunday school teacher walking around the lobby, holding his hand, looking for me. <laughs> did you admit that you got in the car and drove? I home? did because I came in the front door and she was like right there. And <laughs> so I did. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot him. And then my older three kids couldn't let that go. So they were constantly like, remember when you forgot Bo? Remember? Yeah. Talk about growing up with a complex, right? Yeah. <laughs> the forgotten one. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I was asking that because uh, you're in good company. Joseph and Mary left Jesus behind when he was 12. So that's where we're going to start talking about uh, Jesus's life today. We don't know very much about Jesus's life as a boy growing up. In the last episode, we talked about Jesus's dedication to the temple and the fact that both a man and a woman prophesied over him that he was the Messiah. And after that, Luke tells us that they returned to Nazareth in Galilee. And Luke 2 verse 40 says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And we only get a few little glimpses into Jesus's childhood. And the next one is when he's 12. It's the time when a boy would have started more rigorous training in the temple. So let's read about it from Luke 2, verses 41 to 52. I'll read that. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
Okay, so boys about this age sitting and having a Q&A with the teachers of the law was a normal occurrence. They were catechizing these guys in a way, like, you know, like we use the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Catechism, longer or shorter, to do, you know, their theological questions, and then the answers are given and they're used for training. So this started usually when these boys were around 13. So it wasn't really unusual that Jesus would have gone to the temple and sat in on this. No, it wouldn't have been. But frantic parents searching for a child sometimes aren't thinking clearly. And in this instance, God uses that for a very specific purpose. It's easy to read this text and not get some important things that we should take notice of. First, when Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple, she says to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus answers her, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You know, Chris, some commentators try to soften the way Jesus's answer come across. They say that the whole exchange was probably happened quietly just between Jesus and Mary. Maybe Joseph was there too, and not openly in front of everyone. But the Bible doesn't say that. And when a worried mother finally finds her son, it's likely not that this is how it would play out. I've lost a kid in a store too, the other son. And, you know, when I found them, I wasn't saying, okay, let's go in a corner and talk quietly. (laughs) No, that's certainly not something like you would do or me. And, you know, they've been searching for three days. That's right. And nothing's in the Bible, as you said, for no reason. Jesus's answer in verse 49 is the first thing that Jesus says that got recorded. Jesus states, he, that he must be in his father's house. The fact that these are the first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible makes sense because the first thing he is doing is he's proclaiming who he is. He's God. And that's why I really do believe that this was in front of everyone. And this whole scenario playing out does several things. It gives the religious leaders of the time a heads up that Jesus is not your average Jewish boy about to make his bar mitzvah. You know, they were astonished at his understanding. And second, he claims to be in his father's house. In other words, he's claiming to be the son of God. And it's something that we don't see how the Jewish teachers at that time react to. There's just no record of their reaction. Later, the claim makes them furious, of course, and there's lots of recording about that. But here, we just don't know. You know, maybe the comment went over their heads. Maybe they brushed it off. We're just not told. No, we're not. You know, but I really do think this is in there for a reason. And I don't think that it was, I think people try to make Jesus seem nicer by trying to clean that up and saying, oh, he said it to his mother quietly. Right. I think it was out in the open and it makes sense that it would be. He's always kind, but he's not always nice. Absolutely. And, you know, for Joseph and Mary, this was kind of a wake up call. Mary's statement, your father and I, is contrasted by Jesus's words. It's a reminder to them that Joseph is a stepdad and that he has a heavenly father. And it's letting them know that he was sent here with a purpose. He had things to do. Mary and Joseph both knew there was something special about Jesus, but it's kind of like they're not quite getting it. John Calvin actually says, Is it not astonishing that Joseph and Mary did not understand this answer, who had been instructed by many proofs that Jesus is the Son of God? 
you know, I have to agree. There are several instances in scripture where they both had marveled at things that had happened. And yet they're frantically looking for Jesus everywhere but the temple. Yeah. You know, and it is, it's impossible to put ourselves in their place because they obviously knew who he was. But, you know, when day to day, you're the parents. And we see this later with the apostles. That's true. That's true. The fact that Jesus's work that the father gave him to do was in the temple is also a clue to something else. He wasn't found in the seat of government. His work on earth was spiritual in nature, not political. And that's something else we're going to see him have to flesh out later because people get it wrong. Absolutely. And this section of scripture tells us something else too. It tells us that Jesus knew that he was divine. And yet the passage ends with Jesus going home with his earthly parents and obeying them. It says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. That's from Luke 2.52. This whole section of scripture reflects the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Right. And, you know, this is something I've always wondered about because Jesus fully God knew everything for all time. Jesus fully man, you know, how soon did he know everything that was going to happen to him. And it's one of those things that'll just make your brain hurt. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, because Jesus fully man grew in stature and wisdom. Jesus fully God didn't need to. Right, exactly. So it's, it does it's show just, here that he realizes who he is. That's right. That's right. And it's just a mystery that our finite minds can't comprehend. We don't hear any more about Jesus's life until 18 or so years later when he's 30-ish and he starts his ministry, beginning with his baptism. Matthew 3, 13 to 17 says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Lots to unpack here. John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance. People were going out to John, repenting of their sins and being baptized. And that's important because there were other baptisms going on from other religions at the same time. Baptism wasn't a new thing that John the Baptist came up with. We have to be clear that John is calling people to repentance. So what's Jesus doing here? Why is the perfectly sinless, spotless Lamb of God coming to John to be baptized? Because certainly Jesus doesn't need to repent. No, he certainly doesn't. And this is something John the Baptist realizes. He realizes he's the one who needs to be baptized by Jesus, not the other way around. And he says that to him. And Jesus's response is interesting. He says, permit it this time, for in this way, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So, Chris, let's unpack this. First, notice Jesus says to John, it's fitting for us to do this. You know, John the Baptist was the one who was supposed to baptize Jesus. And remember, John the Baptist was specifically sent by God to do his ministry of being the voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for Jesus. And that's prophesied back in Malachi 3. By Jesus being baptized by John, 
it shows that Jesus approved of the baptism John is calling people to, the baptism of repentance. Jesus's approval of what John was doing is going to be important when John the Baptist is put in prison later on in his life by King Herod. Absolutely. When John points out that he himself is the one who needs baptized by Jesus, not the other way around, Jesus doesn't say, no, John, you're wrong. John's absolutely right. Like you said, that he does need the baptism Jesus is going to give. But Jesus says they're going to fulfill all righteousness if John baptizes them. When we repent, it doesn't mean that we're just confessing our sin. It means we're turning from our sin toward God, like a a 180 degree turn away from your sin and toward living righteously. Now, we know that John was right, that Jesus didn't need baptized because of sin. He didn't have any sin. He never had to ask forgiveness or do a 180 for anything, but he's committed to righteousness and not just a little righteousness, all of it. He's the perfect son of Proverbs. He's the fulfillment of all of God's saving activity, and he's going to live in perfect righteousness. So that part of the baptism and repentance does fit here. Yes. Jesus's baptism is also a sign that he's willing to take on the role of our mediator. It shows that he's come to switch places with sinners. And Jesus is getting ready to begin his ministry. The things that happen at his baptism show that he's being set apart to do that, to be the mediator, to switch places with us. Cleansing with water was the first part of dedicating anyone who was going to do any priestly duties. And remember, The priests went in and they made atonement for people's sins. So if we go back to Leviticus chapter 8 and take a look at the consecration of the priests, they had to be set apart. And the first part of doing that were shown in Leviticus 8, 5, and 6, which says, And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Yes. It also points to substitution. God dedicated the Levites to his service as a substitute for the firstborn males of the rest of the Israelite community being put into service. And the Levites were cleansed before starting their service in the temple. And in that same passage that you mentioned, right after they were washed, the priest and the other Levites were anointed with oil. Anointing symbolically shows that they were set apart, or in other words, considered holy unto God and not common. And while Jesus is being baptized, The heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And Isaiah 61, 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So the Holy Spirit anointing Jesus for his ministry work. And that's what all this is showing. In fact, Jesus is called Messiah or Christ. And Christ actually means anointed one. And it not only fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 61, 1, There's more. In Luke's gospel, right between Jesus's baptism and his temptation in the wilderness is a genealogy narrative. It shows Jesus is the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then son of Adam. There's a reason that the baptism is pointing us to that and comes right before it. We see the spirit in the form of a dove hovering over waters. Where else do we see that? At creation. And at the recreation, after the flood, when Noah is on the ark and he sends out the dove to fly over the waters to check for dry land. And here the Holy Spirit's a dove. 
Jesus's baptism is pointing us to something new, a new creation. And that's something that we're going to be a new creation. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Right. And the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters also points us back to creation and the first Adam who failed after being tempted. Jesus is the second Adam or last Adam, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, and he doesn't fail. The first Adam brought death to all humanity through his sin. Jesus brings life. And another thing that points to Jesus being the final Adam is that in Luke's gospel, following Jesus's baptism, is the genealogy going back to Adam. And we talked about this last week. This is Mary's genealogy. And it's followed by Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Right. And Jesus's temptation doesn't come without some controversy among believers. All believers agree that Jesus did not sin. That's not up for debate. But what is up for debate has to do with what theologians call peccability, meaning able to sin, or impeccability, unable to sin. And they're talking about Jesus in these ways. The concern is whether Jesus had fully identified with us in his humanity or not. And again, the question is not whether he sinned, but given that he didn't sin in reality, could he have in theory? And this could be a topic for a whole podcast episode, probably a whole series in itself. But for the sake of time, we're just going to mention some of the big points surrounding the issue. To start, we have to remember what's referred to as the hypostatic union. And that's that Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He's fully God and he's fully man. And we covered this extensively in the episode one plus one equals one. And like we said, we're not going to revisit things we already did, but feel free to go back. It's in the No Half Truths allowed series, and it's based on the book that we have at that title. So we're not going to go there again. But for a quick refresher, Jesus didn't lose his divinity. He didn't lose any of his divinity at the incarnation. He was still fully and completely God, but he was also fully and completely man. Right. And the debate about peccability or impeccability surrounds two portions of scripture. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then a little while later in Hebrews, in chapter 4, verse 15, we're told, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So rose the question could the son of God be tempted has been debated for a long time, and it still is, because the flip side of that is if he couldn't have, could he be truly human and thus identify fully with us? And like we said, it could be a whole episode, and in the end, it's still just going to make you need Tylenol. <laughs> so obviously, Jesus in his divine nature could not sin. And those who hold to the impeccability side that Jesus didn't have the ability to sin give these reasons. First, they say Jesus has two natures, but those natures are united without division or confusion. The human nature of the incarnate son has never existed separate from the second person of the Trinity, the divine nature of Jesus. And we know that natures don't act. 
persons act. So therefore, it's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, fully God, who acts. So if Jesus were to sin in the capacity of his human nature, it would mean a member of the Trinity, Jesus, fully God, sinned, which is impossible for the holy God to sin. Yeah, and the second reason that people give is according to Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, our salvation flows from an eternal plan. We refer to that as the covenant of redemption. And that's the covenant between the three persons of the Trinity to save a people for themselves. And the point that people on this side of the debate make that is that if Jesus could have sinned, then his purpose, born in God's eternal plan, would be called into question. And the third reason they give is that Jesus had the Holy Spirit in these ways. The son's human nature was a result of the spirit overshadowing the virgin. Again, we talked about that last week. The father gave the spirit to Jesus without measure. We see that in John 3, 34. Jesus was anointed by the spirit in the baptism. We just saw that. And Jesus experienced unmitigated fellowship with the Holy Spirit throughout his human life on earth. And we see that in Acts 10, 38. So the Holy Spirit always led the incarnate son through the holy paths of righteousness, even when those paths ventured into the way of temptation. And that brings us back to why we're talking about this in regards to Jesus's baptism, because the spirit descended upon him at his baptism. And the last reason that you mentioned is used by some who hold to the idea that Jesus was able to sin in his human nature, which is called peccability. They believe that the Holy Spirit provided for fully human Jesus's spiritual needs and kept Jesus from sinning in his human nature. R.C. Sproul is one of the people that says this. I'll quote him here about it. He says, at his birth, Jesus's human nature was exactly the same as Adam's before the fall with respect to his moral capability. Jesus had what Augustine called posse peccare and the posse non peccare, and that is the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. Adam sinned, Jesus did not. Satan did everything in his power to corrupt Jesus and tempt him to sin. That would have been an exercise in futility had he been trying to tempt a divine person to sin. Satan was not trying to get God to sin. He was trying to get the human nature of Christ to sin so that he would not be qualified to be savior. I think it is wrong to believe that Christ's divine nature made it impossible for his human nature to sin. At the same time, Christ was uniquely sanctified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit. In order to sin, a person must have a desire for sin. But Jesus's human nature throughout his life was marked by a zeal for righteousness. As long as Jesus had no desire to sin, he would not sin. I may be wrong, but I think it's wrong to believe that Christ's divine nature made it impossible for his human nature to sin. If that were the case, the temptation, the test, and his assuming of the responsibility for the first Adam would have been charades. This position protects the integrity of the authenticity of the human nature because it was the human nature that carried out the mission of the second Adam on our behalf. It was the human nature uniquely anointed beyond measure by the Holy Spirit. And that's the end of what R.C. Sproul has to say. Now, that's a lot to chew on on the subject. And it's one of those, like we said, you could just keep going on and on. Because Jesus was born of a virgin and the Holy Spirit, like we said last week, he was born without sin nature. 
And Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature either. They had the ability to choose whether to sin or not to sin, something we no longer have. We have an inborn sin nature. We can't help but sin. Our sin nature makes us desire sin from the inside. We fight Satan's outward temptations, but they're often fueled by our inward desires. He's not tempting us to do something we don't really want to do. The fact that Jesus didn't have a sin nature doesn't make his temptation any less real. He fasted for 40 days before Satan tempted him to turn a stone into bread. Jesus had to be really hungry and therefore was tempted by that. And throughout his ministry, people were trying to make him king, you know, and were lifting him up and glorifying him. And that had to be a temptation. Absolutely. And our sin nature makes us unable to desire the things of God until and unless the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart. Jesus, not having a sin nature, would have desired the things of God. So there's a debate in a nutshell, and we are going to leave it there for now. Because like you said, we could talk about this for a whole episode at least. But now all of you listening have a lot to look up in scripture and to meditate on. So Merry Christmas. (laughs) So we're going to get back here to Jesus' baptism. And like I said, I wanted to throw this in here because both sides say the Holy Spirit helped Jesus in his righteousness. As the Holy Spirit is descending like a dove, Luke 3.22 says, A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So let's talk about that, Rose. Okay, and we did mention this before. This is God the Father's voice, and there's absolutely no mistaking the identity of who Jesus is. This fulfills Psalm 2.7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that leads us into something else that we should talk about. But first, I want to just say one more thing about the baptism. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus makes it clear how we're to be baptized. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we're mentioning that because there's a lot of people, although we're used to hearing that verse, a lot of churches are baptizing in the name of Jesus only. But As you can see in Jesus's baptism, all three persons of the Trinity are here and all three persons of the Trinity have a part in our salvation. Each person does a part of the salvific work. God the Father chooses before the foundation of the world. We see that in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. The Son secures our salvation through his blood shed on the cross. We see that in Ephesians 1, 7 to 12. And the Holy Spirit applies the work of salvation to us by regenerating our hearts so that we can respond to the gospel message. We see that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And actually nowhere in scripture do we see any of the Trinity acting independently. All three are always involved in everything. Good point. Because they're one God. Mm -hmm. Because of that, you know, we believe following the pattern laid out by our savior is the way to go. So there's two places in Acts, Acts 2.38 and 10.48, where people in the early church were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And Ligonier Ministries says this about this. It says, true, the book of Acts records early Christians as being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But Luke, the author of Acts, certainly does not want us to understand such statements as endorsing a Jesus-only baptismal formula. His remarks are shorthand for Christ's fuller command in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, And they emphasize the newness of the new covenant era in its explicit identification with Jesus. So it's basically 
Luke kind of just shortened it a little bit and might not have been the best way to go, but he's not saying it's in Jesus only. Right. And some say, if you've only been baptized in the name of Jesus only, you need to consider getting rebaptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think what's really at stake here, Rose, is the question, what does your church believe and why would they only baptize you in the name of Jesus only? What's your church believe about the Trinity? That's a big deal. Yes. And I think that's the real issue here. Most Bible-believing, Trinitarian-believing churches follow the pattern that Jesus himself lays out. And I, like I said, that's an important distinction because we have to remember we worship the triune God, and that's never changed, and it never will change from all eternity. God's the same all through eternity, eternity all through all eternity. And that's going to lead us into our next teaching about Jesus. How does this Trinitarian thing work? <laughs> Want to start us on that? Yeah, let me give you the short answer. Actually, there is no short answer, but we're going to try here. God is an eternal being. This means he's always existed and always will exist. God is one God who exists externally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To put it a different way, God is one in essence and three in person. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons and understand they're not physically persons. That's just a anthropomorphism just so we can understand it. But the Bible speaks of the Trinity that way. That's how they refer to them. For instance, we see God, the father in Philippians one, two grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see Jesus as God in Titus two thirteen, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. And we see the Holy Spirit as God in Acts 5, verses 3 to 4, which says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And we want to be clear. These are not just three different ways of looking at God, and they're not just different roles played by God at different times in the way that like a person could be described by using three different titles. Women are daughters, mothers, and sisters often. To think of the Trinity that way is heresy. It's called modalism. That's right. And the reason there's no good example to give of the Trinity is because there's nothing else like it. No. The truth that there's three different persons of the Trinity also means that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. You can see it in the way that the persons of the Trinity refer to themselves and each other when they say I or you, or when Jesus prays to the Father. It's also important to point out that God the Father did not turn into Jesus, and Jesus did not turn into the Holy Spirit. All three persons have existed eternally, co-equally together, and we see evidence of that since all three were at creation in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where it says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And it's important to understand that each person of the Trinity is fully God in and of themselves and by themselves, yet not three different gods. It's one God. Scripture is totally clear. One God. This is important because a lot of times, especially to kids, people use the example of an apple 
or an egg to describe the Trinity. And we shouldn't do that, not even to little kids. Think about it. If you have an apple and you peel it and core it, if you have just one of those parts, you never say, I have an apple. You know, you say, I have an apple peel or I have an apple core or I have the apple meaty part, whatever you call that. But that's not how the triune God operates. So if you had just Jesus, you would have God, just the Holy Spirit, God, the Father, God. So that's not a good example. And we need to kind of stop using that. But, you know, I think you said this before, although we can't fully understand everything about the Trinity, we need to accept the doctrine as true. If we get this doctrine wrong, it can easily lead us to misunderstanding truths in scripture and easily lead us into heresy. That's right. It's one of the essential truths we have to get right because scripture makes it crystal clear. Mm -hmm. You know, while we're on the subject of the Trinity, we just want to mention a debate that's cropping up more and more involving the Trinity. And we're going to make you aware of it because it's likely you've already heard part of it or you're going to hear part of it. You'll hear referred to things one of three ways. ESS, which stands for Eternal Subordination of the Son, or sometimes ERAS, Eternal Relations of Authority and Submissions, or sometimes EFS, Eternal Functional Submission. So Chris, you want to flesh that out a little bit? Yeah. We plan on realming into this more when we do our next Real Truth About series on marriage and children. And if you're asking why there, it's because a lot of the recent debate cropped up surrounding the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood's views on complementarianism, and in particular, how they try to support their views, not only of marriage, but the roles of men and women, even in society in general, by saying that there's an authority structure within the Trinity and then applying that to the roles of men and women. That's right. And there's a lot to go into. That's why we're going to do an episode on it. So something to look forward to. But just to explain the gist of it, we all know that Jesus submits to the Father, as we've seen in the passage. And we all know from the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-two, where Jesus, before he's about to be crucified, says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The point in question is, is the Son, Jesus, subordinate to the Father from all eternity? Is there authority and submission within the inner life of the Trinity, even before creation and redemption? Is that what we see in the verses that talk about Jesus being sent or the Holy Spirit being sent? Right. And, you know, that debate realms in all kinds of things like the will of God within the Trinity and a lot more. And it can lead us out of Orthodox Christian beliefs and into heresy. And there's a question of whether anything regarding the Trinity in those ways should be used to support a view of men and women and roles in marriage and out of marriage. It's highly questionable. It should be used that way, but we're going to talk about it more. Right. But for now, one more thing about our savior is we want to finish up with today is the transfiguration. And that's the story of Jesus's transfiguration that's found in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in Matthew 17, 1 to 13, Mark 9, 2 to 13, and Luke 28 to 26. And it's mentioned one other place, and that's in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 19. Makes sense since Peter was there. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, it's between accounts of Jesus telling the apostles that he's going to die 
and it happens towards the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. Only twice in the Synoptic Gospels do we hear a voice from heaven at Jesus's baptism and at his transfiguration. If the baptism signifies and initiates the opening phase of Jesus's public ministry, the transfiguration apparently inaugurates the closing of it and the opening of what's coming next, his death and resurrection. I'll read Luke's account of it. Now, at eight days after these sayings, he took Peter with him and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So we don't know if this happened in the daytime or at night. The phrase following this says the next day. And Jesus did pray at night sometimes, so it could have been at night. Jesus changes while he's praying in this part of scripture. We aren't told if this happens at other times when he goes off to pray by himself. He's off by himself, nobody sees it. So we just don't know. But the fact that his face was altered should make us recall how Moses' face shone when he came down from the mountain after getting the tablets of the law and seeing the back of God. Right. And Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus, symbolically representing the law and the prophets, respectively. Their appearance with Jesus confirms his fulfillment of the old covenant. As John says in John 1 verse 14, these three have seen his glory. Peter wants to make booze for all three. You know, it's almost like he's putting Jesus on the same level as the other two or something. I mean, he really... I kind of feel sorry. <laughs> anyway, but then they hear the voice from heaven. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And we're going to look at Peter next week. So we'll, we'll look into him a little deeply. But we should definitely heed God's instructions. Listen to him. Like we said, the transfiguration is mentioned only one other place in scripture. And it's in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. And it says there, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
You know, Peter says those words, and he's absolutely right. Jesus had the last word in scripture in his revelation that's given to John. And we should be careful how we handle scripture. We shouldn't add to scripture or take away from it. It's a warning, you know, we see looking back that Eve didn't heed and Pharisees didn't heed. And many today don't heed by saying that they've got new revelation. So listen to him. Jesus is word of God incarnate. That's right. And that's all we have time for today. If you haven't seen our post about it yet, the Bible Blueprint was a finalist in the religion category in the American Book Awards. And we are humbled and honored by that. All the glory to God, of course. And right now it's available in hardback for a limited time, which is really nice if you're looking for a good resource book or a Christmas gift. And just to throw this in here, No Half-Truths Allowed is also available in hardback edition. So they make a nice Christmas gift as a group. So check it out on Amazon or other major book retailers. Have a blessed day.